1: My well, guest today is Martin Gray, and he is an expert on the British Empire, and uh, that's we don't, Today, we're going to start with uh, talking about the early and the rise of the British Empire, and as always, I ask about you. Know, how about my just to get to know them a little bit? How how did you get into the British Empire and their history of the especially the early centuries?
2: Well, um, thank you for inviting me to speak today and um, my interest, I, I've been interested in British history since I was an undergraduate at the University of Toronto. Um, my own specialty is seventeenth, uh, late 17th century British history um, and I've been teaching that at Ryerson University in Toronto for many years but I also I'm interested in the British Empire and have been for quite some time, and I teach a course, I teach a senior course in the British Empire uh, at Ryerson, and uh, so I've become quite interested in uh, imperial history as a result of that, and um, I have some some expertise, which I hope to share with you today. That's fantastic, that's what I'd like to hear. And uh, let's
1: start. Actually, we wanted before, I mean, now we're going to start mainly about overseas colonies, but we start a little bit about this before the recording. So let's start about the Conference of Scotland and Ireland as that's kind of the main jump starter for the British Empire. How did that come about?
2: Uh, well, of course, that was uh, that goes way back in English history. Um, so the English uh, tried to claim lordship over Ireland all the way back in the 12th century, under Henry II, and uh, he sent over an army and attempted to uh, to conquer Ireland. He was unsuccessful, uh, and in fact, uh, subsequent kings uh, attempted to to subjugate Ireland uh, for a very long time. It was Henry VIII in the 16th century who um, actually uh, uh, formally declared himself to to be king of Ireland and uh, but he again he wasn't successful in in conquering the entire Ireland uh, the the entire island of Ireland. Um, It's only under his daughter Elizabeth that uh, we finally have uh, the conquest of Ireland by the English.
1: what What made her successful compared to her father who failed the conquest?
2: Uh, partly she just put more, uh, she put more effort into it. <laughs> it mm. still took a long time. It took, uh, it took quite a, a number of years of war. Uh, but finally by very close to the end of her reign around, around 1600 or so, uh, when, when the conquest was finally accomplished. But even after the conquest, uh, the Irish were not happy about mm. it and they continued to rebel against it, uh, um, from time to time. Uh, over the next uh, several centuries, uh, Scotland was was briefly conquered um, in the medieval period, but it also uh, it, it resisted and uh, achieved its independence. And it's, uh Scotland doesn't become part of Great Britain until uh, the Union of 1707, which was which was not a conquest. It was, we know the uh, story
1: from Braveheart, don't we? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah,
2: the whole Braveheart thing, you know all that uh, swashbuckling stuff. But uh, yeah, so Scotland was never conquered, uh, or at least not permanently. Uh, it joined uh, voluntarily uh, in 1707. Uh, Wales was conquered. Uh, again, that was back in the medieval period. And, uh, and in fact, Wales was, was incorporated uh, into England. So it essentially became part of the English state, whereas Ireland and Scotland remained separate to some degree. And I, I wasn't okay, so that's so it took
1: time, to, in other words. But mm-hmm. when, we, when as we know, the Spanish and I don't know if you can answer this, but when the Spanish had basically half of North North and South America at one point, so when did they, when did the British want to kind of take a, have a piece of the cake of the North American cake? and Why didn't they go for the south? so the central as well to try to get it from Spanish. Why didn't, it, was it easier to just colonize the North, North in a sense? Uh,
2: well, yes, it was. So, so uh, the, the first English uh, voyage across the Atlantic was actually way back in 1497 with um, Giovanni Cabato, who uh, John Cabot, is as, no, as he's known to the English, uh, sailed, uh, to, to what is now Newfoundland, um, but did not attempt to settle there. And throughout the 16th century, the, the English, uh, fisher, uh fishermen regularly went across the Atlantic, uh, and fished in the, uh, in the Grand Banks off the coast of Newfoundland. Uh, so the English were well aware of, uh, the northern part of North America, but made no attempt to settle there. Um, where they get involved in terms of the more southerly areas was uh, basically to attack the Spanish. Mm. Um, Spain was a, the most powerful kingdom in Europe and uh, was becoming, you know, of course, they, they had originally, it was Columbus, Christopher Columbus, who had, had gone, sailed for the Spanish. Uh, and uh, in the intervening decades, uh, Spain had established uh, a strong foothold in Central and South America and the Caribbean, and uh, had become fairly prosperous uh, as a result of that. And so, the hostilities with Spain, you know, gave gave a motivation for um, English sea captains to go across to. Uh, the, particularly the Caribbean, and attack the Spanish. Uh, so there was no attempt to settle at that point or to steal any of their colonies. They just wanted to. They just wanted to to attack the Spanish and and uh, take the take the Spanish crown down a notch. Yeah, well, exactly. And uh, you know, under Elizabeth, there's kind of a cold war with Spain beginning in the 1560s. But by the 1580s, there's open war, and. Uh, so a lot of English sea captains who had the sort of informal blessing of, of the crown would sail off to the Caribbean and attack Spanish ships and, and attack Spanish port cities. And, and they were regularly bringing home, well, I've, I've got the figure of about 200,000 pounds sterling a year in, uh, in steal all stolen goods from the Spanish. Is
1: this where we start to see the first privateering kind of?
2: Absolutely. Yes. And, uh, you know, one of the, one of the famous sea captains Sir Francis Drake, uh, was in fact, a private privateer. Hmm. Um, that was, that was his, uh, entry into, uh, the new world. And in fact, his famous uh, circumnavigation of the globe was a result of a failed, uh, attempt to st- steal from the Spanish. He, he, got, he got almost caught and got chased uh, and ended up uh, not being able to sail back the way he'd come, so he went the other way. And hmm. um, Did it try to
1: take away colonies from Spain, like I you, or, or did they just want to cross like uh, in the
2: In the late 16th century, no. There was no attempt to steal any of the colonies from Spain. Uh, there they didn't really have the they didn't have the sea power the manpower and the reason was that uh, this was all done um, not uh, although as I said the the English crown knew all about it uh, it was not officially these were not expeditions that were under the official uh, you know royal navy these were all private Captains who were in it for their own personal profit, hmm. and so they were not. Uh, they so they didn't have. They didn't have an official navy going out there to uh, to establish any presence there.
1: Because we, when I talked about in the episode with Steve and John, we talked about that they they didn't really have a standing army either. They nope. they had, but it did have started formal navy at this point. That that was the main. Was it on, there like, yeah, like, there, there right?
2: was there was a formal navy that's for sure but this this was not being used as a formal naval operation um, mm-hmm. people like sir john hawkins uh, sir francis drake they were they were operating privately they had investors including in fact elizabeth uh, queen elizabeth did invest in some of their operations but that was uh, privately not not as an official government operation
1: so, so what makes them want well, to settle in in America? So, why why did they choose that? Maybe we should have colonies over there. Is it because they, it would be easier to ta- raid? Was, was it because it was easier to raid from the Spanish, or was it just the did they, they, they realize the land was kind of fertile and it was good for it was good land there? Or what was the reason for finally starting to establish colonies?
2: Well, yes, okay, so that's a good question. The, um, there's, there's really two things involved. One is uh, there were a series of voyages in the late 16th uh, and early 17th century that were looking for the quote unquote Northwest Passage. So the idea that there must be some kind of a route, you could sail around you know, the Cape of Africa, for instance, if you wanted to go to India. But it was on. It was also known you could sail around the Cape, uh, at the bottom of South America. But that was way too that was way too long a voyage. So maybe there's a passage across North America that will shorten the voyage. Um, they, of course, had no idea how. Large North America was. That turned out to be a bad idea. It turned out what well, to be a very bad idea, and uh, but they they tried, and so you know there a bunch of you know Martin Frobisher, for instance, Henry Hudson uh, were all sent over to try and and uh, discover this Northwest Passage, which of course they didn't get. Uh, so that uh, so that was again they're, they're not interested in North America; they're interested in getting to Asia. So they're not interested in land per se, they just want to... That's right. It's only it's only in the late, very late 16th century and into the early 17th century that the idea comes up that maybe we might set, settle some people in uh, uh, North America.
1: We're about the church with Asia. Did it try to establish... A, make a sort of Suez canal already at, at, or did you find out that they didn't have enough resources to make a canal in the Suez or did, didn't have the tried, did, tried attempt to make a canal there?
2: No, no, no. They didn't have that kind of technology or ability uh, at this point. So um, no, there was no sense of trying to uh, to, to dig your way through. Um, but the, there was as I say, by the, by the late 16th century, there was the idea, maybe we can settle some, some people in, in North America, but they deliberately chose to go north of the Spanish territories because they didn't want to compete directly with the Spanish. They didn't feel that they had the, the ability to defend their, uh, their, their colonies if, if they were trying to compete with the Spanish. So they deliberately went further North and, um, it, it, and what they, you know, in the 1580s was the first time uh, John White uh, set out to settle uh, a group of, of people in what Sir Walter Raleigh had called Virginia, uh, naming it after the Virgin Queen Elizabeth, and uh, that was a colony that failed, um, they, they dropped off settlers. They quickly needed more supplies. Sent the ship away to get more supplies, and when the ship came back, there were no settlers there anymore. So, it, 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 that was. was Doesn't
1: that become kind of a legend that it just disappeared out of nowhere? Is that
2: no, it's a not. Legend? Not a legend. It it's, it was true. They, they they the settlers did. They didn't know what happened to them. They didn't mm-hmm. find them. We don't know what happened. It's possible that some of them may have just connected up with uh, indigenous groups. It's possible that they just died. Um, we, we really don't know. But all we know is they weren't there when the ship returned.
1: Because I remember hearing the story when you started talking about it. But I read about it somewhere. I just don't...
2: Yeah, no, it, 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 it did happen. Uh, the next time was in 1607. So it's not really for a couple more decades that we see another attempt. And Why did it wait so it...
1: long between trying to settle... Is it because it didn't felt like the same is going to happen again? Or, or are yeah, they I mean,
2: yeah, they're yeah, they're trying to settle the land? Well, yeah. And again, these were private operations. This was not, the, the British, the, the English government was not the prime mover of these things. They, they weren't particularly interested, largely because of financial reasons. Um, the English government was, the English crown was uh, desperate for money. And uh, they weren't interested in spending any money on this. So these were private operations. And in 1607, there, there is another private consortium of, of business people and they, they come together and they create the Virginia Company. So these are, this is in London. And they decide to send out some, some settlers. Uh, so they send off a ship with uh, about 105 potential settlers uh, and they head off to uh, Virginia, and uh, and they they establish uh, what they call Jamestown, which they name after the English king James I. But it goes very badly. How so? It goes badly because they're just completely unprepared, and which sounds strange because you would think that you know, they they would have made the proper preparations. But part of the reason they were unprepared was remember the Spanish had been in the Americas for now over a century. And
1: so what made there were what num- makes them so successful compared to the British failure? What's made, what, made, what made the Spanish so successful in colonization?
2: Well and this is it. So so there's there are a number of of Spanish uh People who had been over in the Americas, who came back to Spain and then wrote about their experiences, and these were published books, and some of them ended up being translated into English. And partly, it's it's a combination of a bit of romanticism in their writings about the about the new world. You know, this is a you know great place with bountiful great weather resources you know and so a bit of a kind of you know a little bit over uh overselling the whole thing but secondly what also came out was the spanish had uh conquered the indigenous people and in a number of places it actually enslaved the in the indigenous people to work for them so that was particularly true of course once you got once they found the uh, the very rich uh, silver and gold mines in in uh, what is now bolivia but they called it peru and so the the vision that the english you know virginia company had was oh well we're going to do exactly what the spanish did we're going to go over we're going to find this you know hugely abundant land with with all kinds of resources and and we're going to enslave the indigenous people, and uh, you just going to everything. copy the
1: Spanish, basically.
2: Yeah. Oh, exactly. This was this we're going to do exactly what the Spanish did, except further north. And it did not work out. <laughs> so, so they were they they the colonists. It was a it was a mixed bunch, as I mentioned. There were about 105 of them. About half were were gentlemen or soldiers, who they envisioned. The colony as a kind of corporate owned military base.
1: Did they expect which, kind of the Aztec uh, kind of right. religious people so, or that were filled with riches? Kind of was that what they were was expecting?
2: Yeah. And they would and they would just dominate the indigenous people and steal all their wealth and get them to work for them. Uh, and the other half were were basically very marginal, they were beggars, vagrants, you know some criminals who had been taken out of jails so we've got this really strange mix of people and and none of them were prepared to put in much effort they just they just thought that everything was going to be given to them and it and it wasn't in fact it, the like indigenous... a, it doesn't sound like the best recipe no it doesn't and they struggled yeah, and the indigenous people wanted very little to do with them. They were they were a lot smarter and because they, they had already had contact with the English and they mistrusted quite rightly the, the English and they didn't they were not interested in in uh, really cooperating all that much. And uh, so what happens? Well, they they struggle They can't grow enough food to survive. The winters were very harsh. Uh, They're suffering from malaria, yellow fever, and plague. So, of the 105 settlers who landed in Jamestown in 1607, by the next year, one year later, only 38 of them were still living. So that's a huge attrition rate, and and the colony never would have survived. The only reason it survived was that uh, the Virginia Company set out another ship the next year with 180 new colonists Mm. uh, and and supplies. And uh, they really had to change their, you know, this is when John Smith, John Smith, of course, becomes a Mm. bit of a legendary figure here. Um, he kind of takes over his leadership in the colony and he he forces everybody to to work and to to plant uh, crops and and he also is one of the few English colonists who actually makes an attempt to get along with the indigenous peoples. It's it's interesting to think
1: of different history would have been if they didn't send that other ship that they sent just in time.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, obviously the Virginia company. Remember, they, they've they've invested money in this, and they've got no return yet. So it's it's sort of like, well, either we just give up and lose all our money, or we send out more, and we we hope that everything's going to work out. Hmm. And um, it's still a tough slog. Uh, you know, they they do manage to. Grow some crops and, and they're they're working on you know trying to get themselves self-sustaining. Uh, but even then, by 1610, so that's three years after the founding of Jamestown, only 60 colonists still remained alive. So that's out of the the, the 285 that have been sent out, only 60 were still there. So it's still not good. And and they struggled along for, for a while until 1620s, early 16, uh, well actually it's the late 1610s, when they start planting tobacco. So tobacco how did, was, that,
1: how did they realize that tobacco is a good industry and that this is what it should take you That kind of well,
2: yeah, I mean, they knew about tobacco. Columbus, in fact, had brought tobacco back to Spain after his uh, some of his voyages, and so so it had been introduced to Europe, and uh, so it was native to the Caribbean islands, but it was it was also native to Virginia. But what was interesting is, uh, it, it's John Rolfe. Uh, he and he would be a famous settler because probably his greatest claim to fame was he married Pocahontas. Um, but John Rolfe was the, uh, the first to plant tobacco as a crop. And rather than using the native tobacco plant from Virginia, he actually imported uh, from the Caribbean, the Caribbean strain of tobacco, which seemed to do much better. And uh, so they that was it was 1617 is when they first uh, just decided to try and use tobacco as a uh, a cash crop, you know, this is, this is something that we can grow here and we can sell back to England because they're already familiar with tobacco in, in Europe. And, uh, and so they, they go into tobacco big time. Within four years, by 1621, they're exporting 350,000 pounds of it back to England. So in a way, tobacco saves Virginia, they're they're a struggling colony. And the only thing that that actually you know, makes them viable financially is tobacco. But it's a bit of a double-edged sword. Because the more tobacco you start sending back to England, the flood the market and the price drops. Yeah. And then you run into problems with the cost of production and uh, tobacco needs needs a lot of land, but the soil gets exhausted after seven years and remember they don 't have artificial fertilizers mm. so so they need new land they 're continually needing new land, and that of course means they have to take it from the indigenous people who aren 't happy about that so um, it leads to huge huge uh, clashes with the indigenous population, but it also uh, it also means they need cheap labor. In order to be profitable, they need cheap labor, and that's going to lead to some some slave. serious issues.
1: Yeah. So is that the next step in the American colonization? The slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade, is that the? next step in the
2: colonization process? Um, it is, I mean, there's, so at the same time, they're also, oh, well, by the 1620s, we have, of course, the Puritans heading over to uh, Massachusetts, mm. so their first ship arrives in September of 1620, or mm. sorry, in uh, November of 1620. Um, and, uh, and they create a different model um, they do not become the monoculture, uh, that, that, Virginia does monoculture, meaning they're just, they're relying on one crop, which is tobacco. Um, so Massachusetts, the, the Puritan colony becomes, uh, a more, uh, mixed economy. Um, so they, they don't grow tobacco. They, in fact, um. Uh, they they have this sort of mixed economy of farming and trade and fishing off the coast. And, of course, they're very different in that they have families. Um, the Virginia settlers were so, all male.
1: So people begin to kind of realize that this is good land. This is an opportunity for a new life from England that they start to settle. Yes, in yes.
2: Now it's still done privately. It's still private. The Massachusetts Bay Company is uh, is is uh, is founded to, you know, be the, uh, you know. So it's still it's still for profit. They're they're investing and they're trying to get profit on it. But and they do because because they are a a more a more well-rounded economy. They they actually prosper much more than Virginia does. Uh, at least certainly in the early years. So and they don't become they don't become a, a colony that has to rely on cheap labor. So so we don't see that developing there. But at, in the 1620s, we also see the Caribbean islands starting to come into the mix. And so we see um, the the first uh, the first Caribbean colonies are uh, Saint Kitts, 1623. Barbados 1627 Nevis 1628 and Montserrat and Ant- Antigua uh, in uh, in 1632 and uh, so they they start off as again, mixed economies they're they're growing tobacco they're growing cotton uh, but by the 1640s they switched to sugarcane mm. and they switched to sugarcane because up until that point sugarcane which is not a new world product. It comes from the old world. Um, but it had been brought earlier, decades earlier by the Spanish and the Portuguese. And so the Spanish were growing sugarcane in some of their island colonies and the Portuguese were growing sugarcane, massive amounts of sugarcane in Brazil. And so the market, there was no real extra market. Mm. Cuba a massive production of
1: sugarcane as well. Sorry? Cuba becomes a massive production
2: of yep, sugar. Yeah, yeah, for the well. Spanish. Yeah, absolutely. You're right, and uh, and so so at this point, the the British are or the English. Uh, at this point, as we call them, are not uh, are not in, in growing sugarcane. What happens to change that is the 1640s. There's there's a huge uh, civil war in, in Brazil that that interrupts the the the, the sugar growing. Uh, business and trade and so it's it's a group of of Dutch merchants and and along with English merchants who say hey wait a minute there's an opportunity for us to get into the sugar trade and so they start growing sugar in Barbados and then in 1655 uh, they capture Jamaica from the Spanish and that becomes another big sugar producer for the British, for the English. And so then we have the same issue as sugar, of course, originally was a very expensive product, only the, only the wealthiest could afford it. But as you know, production ramps up in the Spanish colonies and then Brazil, we see the price drop, same issue. We need cheap labor in order to keep profits. So the Spanish and the Portuguese had gone towards using African slaves, but the the English weren't originally, and they didn't in Virginia either. They used initially in Virginia something called indentured servants. So indentured servants came from came from the British Isles. Uh, so England and for Ireland, Scotland and they were they were brought over on contracts. Now some of them were quote-unquote voluntary meaning that they had been talked these were poor people who had been talked into signing a contract to go over and work for free for usually four years and then when they finished their their term, they would be set free. And then they could stay or they could go back. So some of them were voluntary, but many of them were not. They were criminals in the jails. They were vagrants, you know, beggars. So it, was
1: kind of, it was kind of Australia before Australia that they had a choice. Absolutely. Work, Absolutely work it was, it new was a way
2: yep, it was a way of getting rid of the quote unquote undesirables. And so they would be they would be rounded up and just sort of forced to sign, or maybe in some cases they didn't even sign contracts. They were just sent over, and uh, they provided labor in Virginia for the tobacco fields and cheap labor, obviously, because uh, the plantation owners had to purchase the, sl- the the servants. But they weren't slaves. They were not slaves. They were because they would be free after the end of their contract uh but they would how many years
1: are we talking about that they had to have this
2: usually usually four if they had a contract but uh if they didn't if there was no formal contract it was often seven years so it it varied um but but there were there was a definite term and when they finished not only did they to get their freedom but they also got what were called um uh, they they got a, a kind of a payment at the end. And in the early 17th century, like first half of 17th century, that was that was standard payment was 50 acres of land.
1: Was it kind of like serfdom in a way, or is it not comparable to serfdom?
2: Not really, no, because they, they did have some rights. Um, and they they and again they did they did get automatic freedom at the end where serfs were there was no automatic. I freedom. mean, when they
1: gained the land, they didn't have to work for the, law, the previous over there, so to speak. Or,
2: Right. Yeah, they were they were totally free. Um, and, and in fact, so indentured servitude lasted throughout the 17th century and into the 18th century. And in fact, the vast majority of uh, immigrants to to the American colonies were indentured servants. About 70 percent who went over were indentured servants. So that was that was a form of labor that that sort of worked, um, at least in in Virginia and a few other and Maryland and a few other colonies that had similar. But it didn't work in the Caribbean. What oh,
1: what what's different different opinion? Why, did, why didn't
2: it work in the Caribbean and why did it work in the mainland? Because the conditions were so much more brutal. Uh, I mean, you've got uh, a, a really, really difficult climate. Mm. You've got, I mean, there, were disease, there was disease in Virginia and, and, the, and the attrition rate in Virginia even was fairly high. Um, probably, I've, I've read statistics, 40% would not last more than two or three years. Um, So the attrition rate was pretty high, but it was even higher in the Caribbean and the, and, and sugar, the sugar production was far harder work. Uh, It was really intense work. And so, so quickly, you know, word spread around in, in, in England, don't go to the Caribbean if you can avoid it. Now, some people couldn't avoid it. They just got shipped there, but but anyone who had any kind of choice went to Virginia or Maryland or, or elsewhere on uh, the uh, American continent. I mean, what was, so,
1: if you had a transfer to four years in the Caribbean, uh, in the certain plantation, let's say, what would be the percentage that you actually can survive those four years versus dying of disease, malaria, or the weather climate conditions?
2: yeah the, oh yeah the attrition rate was horrible and i don't I, I i had the figure for virginia i don't have a figure for the caribbean but it was higher it was higher than 40 percent. so I, I i would estimate it'd be like 60 70 percent and in fact if you managed to survive two years it was considered quite good and uh and so you, that was a period known as seasoning and uh, so you became a, a seasoned veteran, which, of course, is an expression we still use in, you know, things like sports and so on. Seasoned veteran. Mm. But, but it actually meant you survived two years. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty good. Imagine just having a few months left. With your I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. Oh, shit. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah. It, it, was, it was brutal. And uh, so, so they just couldn't keep up enough supply. And so the, the planters in, in the Caribbean uh, started to adopt the Spanish and Portuguese model, which was bringing over African slaves. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's, that's when it's really mid-century that, that England begins to get into uh, the slave trade in a big way. I
1: don't want to step on a limb here, but was it easier for the African slaves to work in this climates or was it even rougher? Uh,
2: uh, interestingly, uh, I mean, it was still obviously horrendous uh, and the treatment of them yeah. was utterly, you know, inhumane. But one advantage that West African people have is that there is a, a kind of it's not a total immunity, but it's a sort of partial immunity to uh, malaria. Uh, that they, I mean, just like Europeans, you know, smallpox it w- had wiped out large numbers of Europeans over the centuries, and uh, and by by the sixteenth seventeenth century, it was still a killer, but the population had a kind of partial immunity to it, so. Uh, Some people didn't get smallpox and some people who did survived, Uh, probably the most famous example was Queen Elizabeth I, who uh, contracted smallpox, but survived. And uh, so that that would be sort of similar to to West Africans who, I mean, uh, malaria, of course, is endemic to West Africa. Um, And there was a kind of partial population immunity So it didn't affect them quite as badly as it did Europeans. So that helped in terms of their survival. But still, large numbers of Africans perished, um, partly because of disease and partly because of appalling treatment. I mean, a
1: lot of them didn't even make it over the voyage as well.
2: Yes. Yeah. And in some voyages, it it could be, uh, it could be as high as, you know, a third to a half of the, of the entire shipment would die on the way over. So yeah, the, the attrition rate was, was horrendous. Um, but it's, as far as the planters were concerned, it, it still worked for them economically. And as we all know, I mean, there are many humans will do, who will do just about anything to make money. And, uh, it it kind of worked for them and it it also spilled over to to virginia and maryland and later on uh, you know georgia uh and uh, and so on where uh they began also to to import some slaves to their tobacco plantations particularly in virginia and, and maryland um but they still continued to have indentured servants, so the two kind of were side by side, and and Virginia and Maryland never had the same kind of volume of slaves as 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 they did in the Caribbean. And in in 1672, but was it tougher
1: for the slaves in the, in the, for, for, especially for the first generation in the further north, as considering the climate is colder and it's. Rough. It was a rougher climate than down in the south. Was it rougher for to get not further north or? Again, uh, a similar no, question was, to the Caribbean one, but the,
2: the Caribbean was still a much much harder place because mm. because the the weather was so brutal because you know the disease was rampant and because the 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 work itself was was really physically physically demanding. Not that tobacco isn't, but. Mm. Even more so than that. So, um, yeah, it's just, you know, it was a horrible is, business in general. It was, it was. And so we have the Royal African Company is, is founded in 1672 uh, for English merchants to, to now, you know, directly involve themselves in the slave trade. And they're bringing over, uh, I think in the, in the total, they bring over about three and a half million Africans. Uh, and until they're finally shut down when the British empire does away with uh, the slave trade in 1807. Um, but, uh, and they're taking not just to the British colonies, but also to, to other places. Um, the, the largest recipient of the African slaves was uh, Brazil. They, they got the largest uh, share of African slaves over the centuries. But the Caribbean certainly got a, a huge number as well. And I
1: want to leave the American part a little bit and go over to the Asian side. And um, as we you know, we are, had an episode of this where the Portuguese had settled in India, but how does Britain do the piece of the Indian Indian um not not Native Americans but India in
2: Asia, yes. I <laughs> Not, not <laughs> to make right. any mistakes. Yes. Well, um, as we probably know from from uh school history, it's the Portuguese who are the first Europeans to sail to India, Vasco da Gama and all that. Uh they reached there in 1498. And uh and what they're what they're getting into is the spice trade. Uh so there were uh, Europeans were already getting spices from the East, uh, but it was, a, it was a complicated trade. It would, it would it, the spices of course themselves were largely produced not in India, but in what is now modern day Indonesia. And they were being shipped over to India where the major spice ports were. And that's where the uh, Arab merchants from the, from the Middle East, Eastern Mediterranean would uh, would connect up with them. And then they would take the spices to the Eastern Mediterranean or to the Black Sea, and there they would sell them to Italian merchants who sailed over uh, in the Mediterranean. How long
1: would, it, would the voyage take from Portuguese, Port, Portugal, or Britain, and all the way to India at this point? Because as we know, they tried to avoid kind of the Ottoman Empire who was still at large at this point in time and they didn't want to pay taxes to them so they tried to find a way, as we know, another way around to sail to Asia. So how long did yes. they take to sail through Africa?
2: Uh, well, they didn't, they sailed around Africa. So they, um, they, the Portuguese had been kind of exploring down the, the, the coast of the west coast of Africa. Uh, in the in the late fifteenth and into the early sixteenth, uh, uh, sorry, yeah, sixteenth century, and um, there they discover that you can actually sail around Africa, and uh, and so that's that's what they do. Um, so they're cutting out the Arab. They don't Italian want to pay taxes
1: much. to the Ottomans to pass them. Sorry,
2: they don't want to don't want, in, avoid
1: paying taxes to the Ottomans at all cross.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And they, don't, they also don't want to have the, the middlemen, the Arabs and the Italian merchants. We, we, you know, if we can cut them out, we can, we can get all that profit for ourselves. So uh, they, they enter into the spice trade and it becomes hugely profitable. And uh, so really it's left, they're the only ones, they're the only Europeans who have a presence in India. Uh, until the very late 16th century. And at that point, both the Dutch and the English get interested in sailing uh, over to to India around Africa uh, to to get in on the spice trade. And so within a very short space of time, so we see the the Dutch, which their state is officially known as the United Provinces, United Provinces uh, send out ships in the 1590s, and this kind of this kind of spurs the English into action because the English don't want the the Dutch to get involved here and and make money out of this. So in 1600, a group of about 200 merchants established a joint stock company known as the East India Company, and there and they send out uh, an expedition to uh, go. And in fact, they don't actually go to India at first. They, the first two expeditions go right to Indonesia. And But the Portuguese have already established, I mean, they've been around in the East for over a century and they've already established a presence there. And the Dutch have also started to establish a presence there. And uh, and in fact, that's that becomes the issue because now we've got three major powers. Well, the Portuguese are not a big power anymore. They've kind of lost uh, a lot of their um, power. So Should really, I listen they, to that guy at Columbus when they had a chance. <laughs> That's right. So, so they're in competition with the which the Dutch East India Company, which was founded in 1602, two years after the English one. Um, so the two start now in competition for for the spices in Indonesia, and. Rather than getting involved in a very, very damaging uh, struggle with the Dutch, the East India Company kind of reaches an arrangement with them. that we're, we'll, we'll give you some money, you do this trade, and, uh, and then you give us a, a portion of it. So they, they don't really want to start fighting the Dutch. And in fact, the Dutch would end up becoming the major power in, in what is now Indonesia. And uh, so it's in, it's in the early uh, 17th century that the first uh, English expedition to the actual Indian continent or subcontinent uh, is, is carried out. And uh, they establish a presence at a place called Surat, which is on the West Coast. Uh, and uh, they establish a quote-unquote factory. and By factory, they mean a place where you have a trading factor. So a factory was simply a trading post. Uh, They established one in 1619. But unlike the New World, where the English just went in and so did the Spanish and the Portuguese and just seized land, um, that was ridiculous. You couldn't do that in India. You can't just go and seize land. I mean, it's a heavily populated country with, yeah. you know, with with very um, wealthy and sophisticated, you know, powers there, military powers, and and there's no way you're going to steal land. So they I, got permission.
1: They I got actually, permission I wanted to ask him about this because as you know, the Mughal Empire is at large at this point in time. So how yep. was the relation with the European powers, and especially? In the British, as we talk about in this episode, how did they trade with the British, did they respect the British, did they have, what was the relationship with the Mughal Empire and the British and European powers at this time?
2: Yes, well, the Mughals had a relationship with the Portuguese and uh, when when the, the, the uh, English show up, um, there's a bit of hesitation on the part of the Mughal Emperor to uh, to welcome them because of course the Portuguese are telling the Mughal Emperor oh, don't don't deal with these people don't deal with these people but what happens is the, the English quickly uh, kind of muscle in they actually there's a there is a, a sea battle that takes place between uh, the English and, and the Portuguese mm. um, and, uh, and the English show that they have superior firepower and suddenly the Mughal emperor takes an interest. And he says, hmm, okay, well, obviously they're a little bit more powerful than the Portuguese. So maybe we should deal with these people. Why? Nice. Be- why? Because the Mughals were uh, great warriors on land, but they had no navy to speak of. Mm. And that was a, an issue when it came to sending pilgrims to Mecca. They went by ship. And if you could have a great naval power, like England, um, sort of assuring your uh, safe passage by ship of your pilgrims, beautiful. So the, the idea was you know, we could be mutually beneficial to each other. So the, the Mughal emperor was happy to deal with the English because they were a powerful naval country. And of course, the English wanted to deal with the Mughals because it, this was an important to getting a foothold in, in India.
1: And they didn't want to try to invade and take over the Mughal
2: Empire. They didn't. They didn't. No, no, didn't no, have, no, no, how would that interest? no. interest. No interest. And and I mean, and never ever does India become a settlement colony, um, even even at the height of the British Raj. The the the. the Brits who go there go there to to work. They work in the civil service, in the army, um, but they all, almost all of them, go back to England when they're finished their careers, or go back to Britain. Um, So it's never a settlement colony. Uh, But uh, and and in the early days, there's no there's no interest in trying to compete with the Mughals. The Mughals were far too powerful Mm. for them to compete with at that time. And in fact, that's really the, the history of, of, of the English and then later the British, once the Act of Union in 1707, we can call them the British. Um, that's, that's the story of their increased presence in India is with the collapse of the Mughals. Mm. Mughal empire collapses in the 18th century, and there's a political vacuum that ends up being filled.
1: Mm. I was actually looking up yesterday because I was fascinated then by this, and there is actually descendants from the Mughal Empire living today, which I found quite fascinating.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, they continued on, but they they, and in fact, they continued on long into you know the era of, of British dominance. There was still still a Mughal emperor in 1857 at the time of the of the Indian mutiny. Um, he was in Delhi, but I mean he had zero power um but uh yeah there's they're still around but they're they're collapsing not yet not yet not in the 17th century that's not until the 18th century that they really start to decline Mm -hmm. so at this point the english are just interested in in establishing trade and so spices they've got this deal with the dutch east india company but what they what they discover is indian cotton cloth it, cotton of course is a fabulous textile and uh you know in the english had been used to europeans had been used to wool that was that was the primary textile that that europeans had and wool is great but you know wool has its drawbacks um it can be you know uncomfortable against the skin it can be uh, you know, it's not, it's not a very light fabric necessarily. It's, uh, it's got its issues, but cotton is fantastic. And uh, so there was this whole cotton industry and they started, the East India company started to buy up cotton cloth and ship it back to England. And it became hugely popular. And not just in England, but in Europe. And so Interestingly enough, spices get pushed to the side. The Dutch really dominate the spice industry, mm-hmm. but the East India Company now takes over the cotton mm-hmm. textile industry. At this and point, are
1: that- starting to become a global power. The British, when when they do. Finally settled in, not settled like you said, but like have trades in India and they have several colonies in America at this point, and they have both Ireland, Scotland, and most of the British Isles. Are they finally a global power or are they still to become like the world?
2: They're, they're on their way towards that, for sure. You know they're still they're they're still not the, the world's greatest power at this point, uh, but they're certainly on their way uh, because they are starting to make some real um, some real profits from from their uh, expeditions to various parts of the world, um, and India is by the later 17th 70- certainly into the 18th century. But even by the later 17th century, India, the East India Company, is becoming extremely profitable. And um, that is that's going to have a huge impact on Britain itself, in fact, Um, as has been pointed out. I mean, once the East India Company really kind of hits its its stride, which is really into the 18th century, it is. It becomes the classic too big to fail company. I mean, it's. It, it employs so many people in Britain. It's got so many interests in in Asia. Um, it's you know it's supporting the shipbuilding industry, the sailing industry. I mean, it's just it's huge. So it's all because of the East India Company, basically, that
1: and the or British in. The company that the British Empire exists at all is that is that is it all because the British
2: India Company? It, not in, no, not entirely. Because uh, I mean, as we've talked about, uh, you know, the American colonies, after a rough beginning, start to to be more prosperous, uh, and of course, the Caribbean colonies with sugar become also hugely profitable in the 17th century. So, uh, and in fact, in the 17th century, it's the, the most profitable part of the empire is Barbados and Jamaica and Antigua, and, you know, the other sugar growing islands. Um, India would surpass that in the 18th century, but it's not till the 18th century that the East India Company really comes into uh, its, its own. Right. And of course, that's a period when the, the Mughals are declining. So, uh, the, the last of the, the really powerful uh, Mughal emperors, Alamgir, is uh, hugely unpopular. He, re- he has a long reign in the last half of the 17th century and in into the early 18th century. He's hugely unpopular because he's trying to force Islam onto everybody. And um, there's massive rebellions that are breaking out across India the
1: British tried to they take advantage of the decline of Moodles? Or
2: not, not initially, not initially, no. Um, it's, they will uh, late, late in the, in the 17th uh, century um, and into the 18th. Well, it's really, again, it's not into the 18th century that they really start to get involved in, in Indian politics, probably sort of mid-18th century. Um, that they really start to to get engaged and part of the reason they get engaged actually believe it or not is because of the French Um, the French also have their own version of the it's always the French isn't it it's always the French yeah absolutely (laughs) so so by that point uh, um, uh, and we're talking now into the late 17th century well, actually, no. It's sort of early in the in the 17th century, 16, 1639. Uh, the the English established a, a new base in uh, this is on the southeast coast in a place they called Madras, uh, which is modern day Chennai, on the southeast coast of uh, of India. And the reason they did that is because that was I mean the area they had at Surat was not a major textile producing area, whereas the southeast uh, around Chennai. Was a very heavy textile producing area. And again, they don't, they don't steal the land, they don't come in and muscle their way. They actually leased the land from a local Hindu ruler. Uh, so it was out, that part was outside of the of the Mughal Empire. And they 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 created a very successful trading post there uh, in 1639. Um, they moved their, their base at Surat south, and that was because because of major rebellion that broke out against the Mughals there, um, that made the whole area too unstable. So they moved south to to modern day Mumbai, which the British called Bombay, which is what the Portuguese had called it. And uh, and then they established a third. So there were really three major bases in India. There was was Mumbai there, well, Bombay as they called it, uh, Madras and Calcutta. Which was in the northeast in the state of Bengal, uh, where they again a major textile um, cotton cloth area, and those became the most important areas for for England, um, and and it's but the British so the British are, or the English British are, are establishing these bases, but the French are also establishing on the east coast in in Pondicherry. And uh, and then it all becomes part of this massive clash of empires in the mid-18th century, you know, the Seven Years' War and all that. And uh, it that's when the British start getting involved in local Indian politics because the French have done it. The French made allies with some local Indian rulers and that – Brought the British into doing the same thing, and that's suddenly drawing them into a lot of the local politics. So it's not until the mid-century, mid-eighteenth century, that that Britain gets more drawn into, you know, Indian affairs. Rather than their model model in the past was simply let's show up, let's, you know, acquire the rights to to set up a trading post and uh, and just make money.
1: Mm. They realize that there's more to the game than just establishing, make profit, and,
2: you know, they realize that there's more to the game. Well, it is, and that's, I mean, it becomes that way. That's not the initial, the initial uh, model for the East India Company is show up and trade and make mm-hmm. lots of money. Um, but it gets more complicated as time goes. So as they're again, as they're competing with the French mm. in India, but also as again we talked about, as the Mughal Empire is collapsing in the 18th century, there's also a kind of uh, an impetus to to gain more control over areas, so that you can. I mean, business loves stability, right? Yeah, instability is bad for business. So it's still all about business, but it's creating the conditions to have successful business. And increasingly in 18th century, that means also creating sort of political stability in the regions in which they're trading.
1: Right thank you so much for coming on and i think we covered the basic of the rise of the british empire it's been a pleasure to have you on before you go do you have anything you you wish to promote and the social media where people might find you and the links you want to put in the description perhaps no nothing in particular nope Thank you so much for, again. Thank you so much for coming. My name is Alan. This has been well.h12. We are available on Instagram, well.h12. You can find us on Spotify, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, wherever you can find podcasts. If you like this episode, please consider checking out some more episodes. we definitely going to find something you like. And please consider rating us on iTunes and write a little bit of review if you take got the time. It would help us out a lot.